So Lisa, last week I had a very interesting dialogue with a group of senior leaders. And one person asked the question, should a white diversity, equity, and inclusion professional actually be in leadership? Should white people be considered for this type of role? And I don't know. It's, it's a really complex conversation. What do you think? Yes, says the <laughs> white person who does DEI stuff. Um, <laughs> I do think it is complicated. Um, I think in endurance sport, where we have a whole lot of white people, it's probably likely that there are going to be white folks stepping into that role in some capacity, mm. particularly in organizations that just don't have the resources to hire someone. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's um, there's a lot of uh, pitfalls um, that mm-hmm. I struggle with daily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think we should talk about it. I think uh, white DI experts should be in the mix, but how they approach the work might be quite different from someone from an oppressed group. So let's talk about it. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, I was in this dialogue last week that I was facilitating and we have been in this sustained dialogue for months now. And so we're finally at a place where a couple of the senior leaders, there are only two senior leaders of color in this organization. We've kind of let them know that they have the option to participate or not, but we're going to really be focusing on white fragility. And so if you would like to be there, that's fine. But if not, just know that this is white leaders work and not your work. And so they excuse themselves. And we started having these conversations about what diversity, equity, and inclusion could look like in their organization and they feel that someone's among the ranks that would be a really good leader when it comes to possibly even a chief diversity officer, but they happen to be a white person. And so they ask the question, is it appropriate for a white person to be the chief diversity officer or the primary DEI consult in the organization? And it made me, it, it gave me kind of like the, the look, you know how I do my head to the side sometimes when I'm thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I had to think about it for a moment because I want people, especially white people, to pick up the work and and pick up the baton, but I think they're going to have to have a different approach in order to be taken seriously um, and in order to move the work forward. I think their work will be quite different from a person of colors, but I just don't know how to flesh that out. I guess my initial question is I'd want to know more about this white person that they're identifying. So is it a guy? Is it a trans person? Is it, a, um, is it, it, are they, I mean, um, right. a, a woman, right. um, are they a member of the LGB community, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a person with disabilities, you know, like, I think it's, um, that adds some context, I think, to how I might answer that question. Mm-hmm. And, and then also, what is the focus of their chief diversity officer? Is the focus of their chief diversity officer around race, racism, anti-racism, deconstructing white supremacy in the organization? In which case I would say, no, probably shouldn't be a white person. Um, mm-hmm. Right. But if, mm-hmm. if, are they talking about diversity, inclusion and equity in a much broader sense, a piece of which is around race, but that's not the totality of it. Like, I think that that plays into whether it makes sense. Although I think 
I, I mean, I analyzed that right there, but I think my gut, my just like kind of my gut reaction is that no, a white man especially should not be a chief diversity officer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and you know, I think there's a couple of things that have to really be fleshed out even for the person to either want to be the role in the role or to be effective in the role. So for example, I think there's a big difference between self and other, for example. So um, for example, let's say I know quite strongly that Dr. Lisa is a fantastic DEI uh, person with expertise, et cetera. However, it's not about what I know. It's many times about what's being perceived. Mm -hmm. And so if the perception is, oh, well, there's a white savior complex going on here where this person is expected to clean up a mess or uh, be responsive to a critical incident that may have happened in the organization or in the tri club or wherever, then I, I think that really changes things. So it, you have to really dance well between the truth of the matter and the perception of the matter. And the perception could be that a white person mm-hmm. is brought in to fix things when a person of color could have been chosen or a person with some other oppressed identity, personal identity, and the skill sets could have been hired or contacted or enlisted as a consultant. So I'm always wondering, you know, can they navigate the space based on how they per- they are perceived? Because mm-hmm. that makes a huge difference. Yeah. And I, I also think that, you know, predominantly white organizations probably orient to a white DEI expert um, when they're thinking about Mm. hiring a consultant because Mm -hmm. that feels safer, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the very same dialogue that I'm referring to, uh, they talked quite a bit about uh, how did they define uh, white privilege and even white fragility. And one of the definitions they used was actually white protection, um, meaning that because of this, I could use this identity and how it's perceived as per, as protection, whereas other people don't have the benefit of doing that. And mm-hmm. so I'm wondering whether if a white DEI expert or someone with such expertise came in, are they indeed protected in their role in ways that a person of color, LGBT person, person with right. disability, would they be uh, protected in the very same ways, I doubt it very seriously. <laughs> I doubt it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, yeah, about taking a, a white man as the DEI expert, because I think it will be slightly different for a woman um, or mm-hmm. a trans person, very different for a trans person probably. Um, mm-hmm. The white guy, if they, you know, kind of um, th- throw some bombs into the situation, um, will likely come out little less scathed than Mm, a person of color mm -hmm. might, right? Like they're going to be able to, they're not going to be blamed for Mm -hmm. the deterioration of a process in the same way that a person of color might be, I think. Yes. So in that Mm. sense, the whiteness will protect them and in so doing protect the community in which they're trying to nudge Mm -hmm. along, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, it makes me wonder, so if we, let's say there are fantastic folks that could be great DEI professionals who happen to identify as white, what would we want to see? You know, what would be the ideal candidate, if you Mm -hmm. will, when they talk about the job search and uh, and human resources and so forth? 
I, I think the very first thing off the rip would be just flat out cultural humility yeah. and yeah. always holding in front of you how much you don't know and how much you do know and how much you're learning um, and, and always trying to close that gap. I think that should be like the major starting point on qualifications. If I mm-hmm. saw or interacted with someone who had even a hint of arrogance, that already disqualifies them in my, uh, in my view. Yeah. And I think a lot, a lot of white people can get pretty arrogant around this stuff, right? Because that's white supremacy coming in there around like that. I know better about DEI work than anyone else. And so I think it's pretty Mm. easy for white people who are like very, um, uh, passionate about this work to fall into that trap and Mm -hmm. then be really resistant or defensive about it being pointed out to them. Mm -hmm. So to, to connect with what you're suggesting, I think the next thing would be then collaboration, right? That if I don't Mm. know, I don't know as a white DI person, Mm -hmm. then I need to have a strong network of people who I can collaborate with, who represent different life experiences and different backgrounds. And I recognize Mm -hmm. where I cannot speak to experience a, because it is not my lived experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. They have to be very cognizant of who they're working with. Um, I appreciate, I so appreciate uh, Tara Taylor, who's one of my close, close working buddies. Um, And the reason why I appreciate her so much is because she is extremely strong in a number of different areas Um, was born and raised in a pretty affluent, extremely white, overtly white area. Um, And and she'll say all of this herself. And one of the things I appreciate about her is that she usually partners with me or another person of color on the majority of her work. Now, she could run circles around anybody in regards to the scholarship on these topics, um, worked within our uh, state uh, civil rights office for many years investigating cases of discrimination and so forth, but just the self-awareness to know how she could possibly be received as the white, female, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Polish woman walking in to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion Mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. She's very clear on her positionality, and that's why she, um, I, I can't even recall the last time that she walked into an organization where she only did the work alone, and, and I think that's very intentional, and, and I think it, can help her with her reception um, from other organizations. So I think collaboration is certainly key. Um, yeah. But I think that brings the credibility piece in too, mm-hmm. you know, who you walk in the door with. Yeah. I mean, and I think that, you know, given that whiteness kind of bestows an unquestionable level of credibility on white people um, in a different way than um, folks of color, that I think the DEI expert consultant person doing the work really needs to have a sensitivity to that, to understand and perhaps even question why are they at the top of the list vis-a-vis someone um, Mm. with a, with a different racial experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How how did I get to the short list for this work? Exactly. (laughs) Who, who, uh, who is not on the list because I am on the list (laughs) and tell me more about those folks too. So yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Well, and then it, it makes me kind of think too about, um, are, is the person being hired because of whiteness and expertise that they cannot prove, but they're assumed to have? Um, versus actually having that experience. So Lisa, we can say 
even as you identify as a white female, you have a PhD in intercultural communication. You got papers, we got transcripts, we know what you know, and we can document that we know what you know. Um, but we can't necessarily say that for people from other fields, like if you come out of sociology or you know some other fields that definitely do consider identity, but it doesn't mean that you deeply understand the nuances of critical race theory, for example, or feminist theories and, and multiple waves. You know, I, I think the assumed exp expertise piece is really important. Like how mm -hmm. much do we want to be documented or not? Um, and how much is, is enough lived experience and, and kind of the combination of the two? And I don't think there's a perfect combination, but you can't go with all of one and none of the other. Yeah, that's a great point, actually, because I wonder, you know, when I think about white supremacy, um, I think about hiring requirements that privilege academic credentials um, and also male supremacy. I suppose there too, since higher education was originally designed for and by white men. I mean, that's less the case now because we have a significant number of women who are graduating with degrees, white women. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if we set up a job description or an RFP and we require a PhD in a particular field, um, then that in and of itself is excluding people who perhaps are actually more qualified, but don't have the papers, right? Like mm. the papers don't necessarily bestow a hundred percent. That's right. Knowledge, attitude, skills. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it, it gets you along the road. It gets you down the road, but it doesn't get you all the way down the road. Um, so, you know, I love the combinations. So, you know, I'm, I'm on a search committee right now where we're looking for a director. And, you know, I think what's really interesting is when I both hear that this person has done research, for example, on um, uh, protest, for example, like hard research on protest, but also has moderated a protest and made sure that people were safe while protesting and have evidence of actually being on the streets while protesting. That's a different matter. Um, and that's a lived experience. And so, you know, I, I just don't think we can have more than one, more of one than the other. Um, so, you right, know, what if right. there are some things that go on where, for example, it's a white DEI professional who grew up in Appalachia, for example, which is desperate poverty um, or, you know, some other type of unique experience that lends itself to the work. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of um, my really good friend, Courtney, who I adore. I love you, Courtney, if you're listening. Um, Courtney. Uh, when I was the director of a multicultural center, um, the multicultural center's name was the James Farmer Multicultural Center. It was named after Dr. Farmer, um, who was a contemporary of Dr. King. And he kind of was behind the scenes with uh, coordinating the Freedom Rides. And so, and he was a professor at the school where I was working until his death. And so I was the, <laughs> I tripped into being the director of this center. I was hired as the associate director. And then three weeks after I started, the uh, director who was on FMLA said, you know what? I'm good. Not coming back. Staying home with my baby. I'm enjoying it. Bye. And so magically within three weeks, I'm the director of a multicultural center. And I had, uh, I had some staff, but I didn't have a full staff. And so I had the privilege of then hiring my replacement as the associate director of the multicultural center. And uh, Courtney was one of several really strong finalists. Um, 
but she was the only white candidate, uh, white finalist um, for the position. And I ended up hiring her. Um, and I got a lot of flack for that, a whole lot of flack for that. And I, you know, I still rethink it. Um, and I know I made the right choice, but I rethink the perceptions of others, not my decision. Right. Um, right. You know, I rethink it all the time. Uh, now she's going on to get her PhD in social work. Um, but yeah, I rethink the animosity behind it. I, I don't have a good grasp on it, but I know there was <laughs> stated animosity. Why would you hire a white girl to do this work? <laughs> um, there, there's a lot to it. If you make that choice, even yeah. when they're strong. Yeah. I mean, I understand where that pushback would come from for sure. Um, I had applied for a diversity position, but in higher ed years and years and years ago, and I made it to the final round and it never felt right. Like I didn't get it. Mm. And I'm actually kind of glad I didn't get it because it just Mm -hmm. felt a bit icky. Uh Um, You know, it wasn't a position that was solely about race. It was about all identity groups, Um, but still it just didn't feel like that that was the best fit for me as a white person at that point in my life. So, mm-hmm. and I think the perception similarly to your experience, if I had have been hired would have been, there would have been pushback and perhaps rightly so. Yeah. Yeah. It was going to be some resistance. Now at the time, the campus that I was working on was literally uh, <laughs> was 88% white, 22% students of color, including international students, which is not a lot. Um and the, the young woman who I hired, uh, her background was in social work. Both her, um, her undergrad and master's were in social work. And she studied global issues, had done a lot of uh, mission work with her, um, her church and you know, her hometown and so forth. And her expertise actually is in um, service learning in particular. And so it was a fine balance of how do you not go down the road of savior complex? Because a lot of times that's what service learning ends up being inadvertently is savior, savior yep. complex. Let's, yep. let's descend upon New Orleans right after Hurricane Katrina and help these poor people out um, versus we're going in to provide supports, but we're also going in to learn more because it's clear that we don't know enough about these folks and their lived experience. Um, and so she ended up being the best blend, but you know, I still process what that looked like, what that felt like. Um, she was the only white person in our multicultural center staff. Everyone else was a person of color. Um, and so I kind of, um, <laughs> she ended up being a really strong Trojan horse, if you will, in lots of different settings mm-hmm. though, mm-hmm. which I thought was so fascinating to just sit back and watch that. Uh, because when I yeah. showed up as the black director of the center, it was assumed that she's definitely the director of the center. But if you have a white woman that shows up and mm-hmm. she's well-versed on all these topics and, you know, you listen to people talk and they think they can kind of be a little more flagrant with their language or with their perspectives. And then all of a sudden she interrupts that. That's when we get into uh, what we talked about a episode or so ago around Barner Hess and um, the right. eight white identities of she, she was most certainly a white. I need to put her face beside white trader. She's an excellent white mm-hmm. trader. Uh, because she wasn't what she what you expected her to be. She's from Alabama. Do you really expect a white woman from Alabama to be well versed in DEI topics? Hell right, no. right. Yeah, and I think you just highlighted an, another thing that would be important for a white DEI consultant expert 
diversity officer, right, is that willingness to be a white trader and to mm. use mm-hmm. assumptions about your identity to your advantage as, Ooh, yes. uh, and to essentially create openings for conversation about assumption and everything that you just mentioned, you know, absolutely. Um, Mm-hmm. Cause that Trojan horse piece, I think can be very, very powerful, um, mm-hmm. in terms of if you're, if you're looking at a predominantly white organization, um, because white yeah. people get comfortable with white people and we, right. we want more white people to be interrupters, right? Like mm-hmm. we want them to at risk and do that. Um, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I, I think, yeah, so we may want to kind of think through too, you know, and I've seen it happen with a number of my colleagues who are either white or um, biracial, multiracial, and and partially white that present as white. And I love when that, you know, it, it's nothing like seeing all of the blood drain out of the white man's face that said something very white man-ish to a multiracial or biracial individual that they read wrong. Nothing like it. Yeah, I Nothing bet. like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've seen it more than once. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, I, I think- you know, sending them in as the Trojan horse kind of can, you have to make sure they're diplomatic and nuanced in a couple of different ways because they need to know when to interject, but they also need to know when to be quiet about certain things. Yeah, agreed. Um, because the, it, it kind of goes back to, we used to talk about that many podcasts ago about taking up space and how like man spread happens uh-huh. where they're just taking up to, uh-huh. I'm thinking about that in the same way where, you know, a white person needs to know not to take up too much space in a DEI conversation until the time and moment is appropriate, right, right. whatever that looks like. Yeah. Is that like white spreading? <laughs> there you go. White spreading. Exactly. You have white, yeah, man too far. Oh my gosh. We, did we just quote <laughs> a new term? Probably not. But. <laughs> white spreading. I'll look it up and see if anybody's got it yet. But yeah, I, I that's the first time I've heard it. Yeah. Um, But yeah, but you got a point around that though. Like if it's white spreading, how do you, as the resident DEI person, be powerful and assertive in your role without interjecting in ways that could work against the movement? And that is so nuanced and we don't have an answer for that. I don't think, but I think it's something Mm -hmm. to consider. Yeah. And I I think all we're talking about here is that it's complex. It's complicated. There isn't necessarily a quote unquote right answer, but I think part of what you would want to look for in a, if you're looking to a white person to do your DEI work is that they have some or a significant awareness of that complexity um, Mm -hmm. and that it's nuanced and that they're able to navigate that nuance in a way that is helpful ultimately to the health of the organization and the staff people Mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I, that's a skill. That's absolutely a skill. Um, like it's, I don't, that's, I don't know that I almost don't know that you can be taught that. I feel like you're, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's like, you're good at it or you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that's true. And it's like, well, it's, it's almost like what people say about leadership. Is it, is it um, something you're born with or is it something that you can develop over time? Um, I do think that there are clearly some people that are born with a, with the ability to do it well, but could you possibly develop it? Because on the other hand, I don't want people in any industry who want to sharpen 
professional skills around DEI, I don't want them to think they're hopeless necessarily. Like there are some skills that can be developed. Uh I just don't know if the nuance of the communication piece, because we're we're primarily talking about communication of Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. allyship, you know, to another level. You you can, like we had, we've had organizations that we know of who've had folks that were excellent in the knowledge and cultural competence of certain areas, but Ugh, they were not diplomatic or they didn't communicate well with individuals or, um, you know, they maybe were good at tone policing others, but couldn't mm. tone police themselves. I mean, that just so many nuances to the communication piece of this for a white person. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't mean to foreclose on the fact that, you know, you either have it or you don't, I don't mean that. I suppose, I think that there's just, there's a, I think you could still be a good DEI expert, right? If you stumble through that communication piece a little bit, I think there's probably a small subset of people who are just really good at reading the room, Mm, reading the organization, being able to kind of navigate inside and outside all those layers and dynamics when we're talking about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I don't put myself there at all. Um, I think that there, I have a friend actually who I would put there who is a, a white male who uses mm-hmm. humor actually very well. And he, I, th- I, you know, I idolize his style actually. Um, mm-hmm. he, I think that, and I think that's just a, that feels n- like it's a natural thing for him. Like, I don't know. I think he honed it over time, but I think that yeah. he always had it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and if it's a skill, like even if it's a skill such as humor or, you know, some other type of communication style, maybe it was being used in some other industry and then they found it and applied right. it to this right. industry, you know, yeah. um, that it became a transferable skill for them mm-hmm. um, in their work. And so, you know, so I guess, you know, just to kind of summarize our random musings here, y'all, is that, you know, I'm just wondering how, because I think, you know, we've harped on it more than once where we, as people of color, as uh, women, we want people to pass the baton to, and I do think that there are willing white people who are interested in kind of leading some of this work so that we can take some of the invisible labor off of people of color and women and other oppressed groups in endurance sport. We just want them to do it with nuance. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that yeah. Yeah, we're, we're not n- discouraging anyone from doing the work, but here's some of the nuances that you may want to consider, you know, mm-hmm. that no, you can't necessarily blast everyone that, you know, what is it? Um, using a cannon to kill a fly or something like you can't always use that you can, but not always. And so, you know, how do we get folks to really step up in their endurance sport communities, local and otherwise to do it with a skill set that's much more nuanced as a white person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just want to circle back again to that piece of like knowing when to stop talking, right? Like you had mentioned earlier, because Mm -hmm. I think that that is a really important, um, piece that white people need to remember. So if you're really, if you're passionate about this, you're in it, you want to do this work, you -hmm. need to understand that it's not always your time. And there's not always a moment for your voice because white people are very used to being heard and listened to. Um, Mm. And so it's really important that you're backing up and recognizing that um, even though you want to be a Mm co-conspirator, an ally, an advocate, that you can, and you need to know when to move forward and move back. Mm. Well, with that being said, I'm going to be quiet and not tell white people what to do. 
what she said is going to be my tag, what she said. Um, but yeah, I, I love that, you know, we just need to think through what do we advise uh, for white folks who want to do the work. And so yeah. I think we've got some some ideas here. Nothing concrete, but definitely no, some great ideas. Nothing concrete. And we perhaps started a new hashtag of white spreading. White spreading. I know that's right. Exactly. Exactly. So so we encourage you to go over to our unfazed Facebook page um, and make sure you go check that out and we can continue the conversation there. But Lisa, I think we uh, we did great with this particular topic of mm-hmm. once again, giving no answers, but lots of questions and thoughts around the topic. So yep, indeed. white spreading, white spreading, hashtag it, white spreading. The Unfazed Podcast and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them? They don't just give you data. They provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash Feisty Triathlon. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.